The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. Welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. I'm your host, JP John Paz. With me today, very special guest, former two-time AWA World Tag Team Champion, two-time AWA Television Champion, WWC Tag Team Champion. He's, of course, the legendary Mr. Greg Gagne. Greg, welcome to two-man power well, Thank you very much, JP. That's my oldest son's, uh, his is John Paul, so we call him JP. Hey, I'm John Paul as well. Are you really? Yeah. Yep. I don't find too many of those. Yeah. You must be a little French then, a little French background. No, Polish. Really? Yeah. Oh, terrific. Yep. And a little bit of Portuguese and and, uh, and some German, but mostly Polish. Yeah, good good combination. Yeah. You so were really say... strong men. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like Ivan Putsky and yes. yes. Ah, terrific. Yeah. My dad used to love Ivan Putsky back in the day. Uh-huh. Well, he's on board with us. We'll have, uh, you know, we're with the, the, the Power Town. Uh, we're wrestling lives on is the name of our company and, i was gonna uh, say um what's going on with you and power town because those figures look uh, pretty damn good well thank you jp we just kicked it off uh a week ago last friday and we had uh according to uh, our distributor high spots and michael said it exceeded all expectations so uh it's it's really done well the pre-sales for uh people they get a 10 percent discount if they order now on powertown.com and uh, the first six figures were Luthez, Vern Gagne, King Kong Brody, Stan Hansen, Magnum TA, and Kerry Von Erich. Pretty awesome. And they look tremendous. How did this all come about? Like, how did Powertown start? How did you pick those guys? Well, Steve Rosenthal um, was with Remco Toys back in the 80s. And uh, Steve was trying to work a deal with McMahon. His son was a wrestling fan. He lived in New Jersey. So he went to Vince and tried to work a deal with him two or three times, met with him, didn't work out. He called Vern, came in, and uh, 1980s, we did the action figures, and it was Remco's highest-selling action figure ever put on the market. And Steve did it for seven or eight years, retired, and out of the clear blue, about a year and a half ago, he called me up and he said, hey, why don't we get back in the action figure business? And I said, what do you have in mind? And he told me, and I said, you know, if we're going to do something like that, the current people have had so much done on them. 
why don't we go back and there's uh, so many historians out there and wrestling fans today's young people still want to know about the past they hear about from their parents i said let's go back to when tv started on the networks 1950 out of chicago dumont network wrestling went on the air in fact my father we were uh, his first match was in 1949 in minneapolis and he won by disqualification the promoter said burn you're just too small so they sent him to oklahoma and we lived in a trailer he bought a trailer my mom dad and i and i was only about two years old and went down to tulsa oklahoma second week there he won the nwa light heavyweight championship and uh had great success down there for a, a, over a year or just a, just under a year i guess it was because then he got the call from fred kohler in chicago Vern, we'd like you to come in. We're going on network TV and we'd like you to, to be part of it, uh, especially with your credentials. You know, Minnesota, he was a state high school wrestling champion, four-time Big Ten champion at the University of Minnesota, uh, two-time NCAA champion, wrestled on the 48 Olympic team. And Fred said, we want somebody with that kind of a background uh, to get on network TV, to put on network TV. So Vern tells the story, so he gets to, gets to Chicago. Gets up in the locker room. There's about 30 guys in the locker room and Fred Kohler. And Fred says, Vern, here's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to dress you up as a Martian and we're going to lower you from the ceiling. And he said, the hell you are. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I'll tell you what. I'm going to go down in the ring. And all these guys here, they can go down one at a time, two at a time, or three at a time. And if I can't beat them all, I'll quit. And nobody would get in the ring with them. So he was able to wrestle with his wrestling boots and his tights. And he used to tell the story, you know, none of us knew a whole lot about TV then and the power of TV, you know, this is 1950. And uh, it was just the, the end of the era uh, of Gorgeous George. And uh, so some of the stars on the network TV at that time were Vern, Pat O'Connor, Edward Carpentier, Antonio Rocca, Dick the Bruiser, uh, Yukon Eric, Killer Kowalski, Hardbolt Haggerty, The Mighty Atlas, uh, uh, Angelo Paffo, uh, those were kind of the people that really set the stage for TV and network TV, uh, wrestling. And all the little territories around the country then, what they would do is they would call Fred Kohler and they'd say, hey, we would like to have Vern and Pat O'Connor in Buffalo, New York uh, to wrestle our tag team champions up there. So Vern told the story. We our plane was late out of Chicago. We get into, we get into Buffalo. It's snowing. There's traffic everywhere. We're late for the arena. And we said, my God, what's, what's going on in town is going to kill our gate. And it was for the wrestling. He said they turned away about 25,000 people that night. And that's when they realized the strength of TV and what it meant. So while Pat and Vern went to wrestle in Buffalo, maybe Luthes and Killer Kowalski were in uh, Boston. And Wilbur Snyder and Dick the Bruiser were in St. Louis. And Angelo Paffo and uh, Yukon Eric were, you know, somewhere else, uh, Indianapolis or wherever. And uh, that ran on TV for about seven years. And it got so popular running it every night and they kind of burned it out. But the uh, stories used to be that people in the early 50s, a lot of them didn't have TVs. So what they do, they go out in the streets in downtown Chicago, 
and the big part, department stores had the TVs. They had them all on wrestling. That was in Philadelphia and in New York, Chicago, Denver, where San Francisco, wherever you were. And people were gathered in front of those department stores watching it. So I said, Steve, everybody today thinks Vince McMahon was the, you know, the young people think he was the guy that developed wrestling. And now AEW has come in. And it started in 50. And those are the pioneers, the legends that are named there. They're the ones that really set the pace for where wrestling was going. So let's honor them. And that's what we're doing. So we're starting in the 50s and going up to the 90s. And we will go beyond eventually. But um, it was it was very interesting and fun, JP, because I had to contact families. You know, most the majority of these, all the guys I know of, they're all passed away. Right. But we located the families. And talking to them was unbelievable. I, I, I talked to Rosalie Heaton, Don Leo Jonathan's wife. I called her up. We got him, got him on board. And then I was calling and checking up on her one day. And she's, she's like this on the phone. <sighs> and I said, Rosalie, are you all right? She said, yeah. Now she's 86 years old. Yeah, I just, I'm in the middle of my workout. <laughs> I said, well, I'll let you get back to it. So we started in the 50s with all those stars, in, then it, into the 60s, 70s, and 80s. We've got over 200 on board right now. Wow, man. And obviously it starts out with those six, but that's just a tremendous start. Well, we have men, women. You know, women were very important broadcasters. You know, all the people that, that were so important to, to, to building this industry. And that's the people we're representing. And the if little you, people. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, Magnum had mentioned that. <laughs> there might be yeah. some little people. Yeah. I was surprised. But, I mean, that that's true, too, that they, you know, they had their place in history, too. Oh, my God. My dad used to say, you know, uh, they would wrestle in Montreal and, and uh, Lord Littlebrook and Lou Beaver and Sky Lolo. And uh, he said, we would all go out and watch their matches. They were so great, so entertaining. And so we're, we're, we're going to do, do a lot with them. They deserve it. It's hard to, hard to find their families, but we've tracked down a few. And we'll get the ones that we can't find. We've got a fund set up that when we make their action figures and some of the other merchandise we're working on, that'll go into a kitty. And if people come out of the woodwork, we'll certainly give it to them with interest. And if they don't, we'll hand it to the families that really need it, as a lot of them do. With that, though, I mean, do you guys have, right now, that I mean, the six you do have, the figures look tremendous. I mean, the Magnum looks awesome. You got the jacket and everything. And their life, I mean, like life-size. For instance, like Brody is a little bit tall. And Hanson, his figure right. is a little bit tall. So that, you guys even nailed that. We did that. And the championship belts that they had, uh, the wrestling boots, their, their ring jackets, whatever they had back at that time. Uh, and they've done a, Steve and the group uh, uh, have done a great job putting all that together. And they really look unique. We wanted something that was unique and different than anybody else. And I think we've come up, come up with that. When you look at like Mattel or WB, even their packaging isn't as good as your packaging and what you guys delivered as far as even the box. I was surprised. Like, wow, it's like almost goes above and beyond what you'd expect for a wrestling figure. Well, you know, it's the people out there that are the collectors and the people that 
want to know about the history of wrestling. We kind of wanted to have a different look than anything else that was out there and taking it back to what things may have looked like back then. Of course, the boxes wouldn't have looked like that. This, this one is really spectacular. I agree with you. Are you going to be getting one? Maybe the high flyers, maybe you and Brunzel being getting a, a well, eventually, you know, I, right now being a partner in it, I'd rather get all the other people out and make sure that they're being taken care of. Uh, I always have time for me, but uh, I'm dedicated to the people that, you know, started this industry and the people that we brought on board and, uh, TA and I are just, that's the people that we want to make sure that they're taken care of and that they, they can um, benefit, benefit uh, of the, the, get the profits of what comes in. They deserve it. With you, when you got into wrestling originally, did Vern, did your dad want you to be in wrestling or did he not want you to be in wrestling? Because I hear both sides like, oh, you're definitely got to be in. You got to be in maybe like Stu or something. But then I hear other guys saying, I don't want my kid involved in wrestling. What was Vern like? I always wanted to be a professional football player. And uh, I concentrated on football. In fact, I was a ball boy when I was 12 years old for the Minnesota Vikings up in Bemidji, Minnesota. And I got a chance to, after practice, Fran Tarkenton would work with me on my throwing. Oh, and uh, I went to college to play football. I played at the University of Minnesota for a year. They moved me to defense, and because they they back then in the Big Ten they didn't throw the ball much. They they ran it, and I was I was a good thrower. I could also run. Uh, so uh, moved me to defensive cornerback, and uh, then he was in a red shirt. Me, Murray Warworth was the coach the first year, or my second year there, and he said. Uh, uh, you know, as a red shirt, we can put you in for one game. We're playing Michigan this 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 week, and we're, you're going to put you in the game. And I said, well, Murray, I'm going to have to cover Clinton Jones. He just sent the world record in the 100-yard dash. I can't cover him. And then Murray said to me, yeah, you're smart enough. And I said, I'm smart enough to know I can't cover him. <laughs> so I, I asked him if I could transfer uh, Wyoming and recruited me. So I ended up out there and played quarterback at Wyoming. So it was one then, of the things my dad, you know, from the time I was a little guy, I, I went out for wrestling. I wrestled up through fifth, sixth grade. And uh, I had very good success with it because I had a lot of training in the living room with the furniture moved out. My mother always yelling at my dad, would you guys knock it off? <laughs> he always had me screaming, you know. <laughs> He'd show you hold, and then when you try to do it, he reverse you, and you got a big kick out of that. Um, but then after the football season ended um, uh, in Wyoming, my last year, I came home, and and I had a, a chance to get a uh, uh, a letter of intent, or a, what they call it, with the Atlanta Falcons and Norm Van Brocklin as a free agent. And so I, I finished football season and I left school and got home to train. And my dad put me with Billy Robinson, said he'll get you in great shape for football. And I was working out with Billy and that workout consisted of a lot of cardio. But then I had to get on the mat with him and a lot of wrestling and defensive wrestling and and uh, uh, even uh, submission wrestling. And uh well, we got to the springtime and we're getting ready for football and I hadn't heard anything. And I said, you know, dad, I'd really like to wrestle. Well, what makes you think you can wrestle? And I said, well, I think I can. I've been working out with Billy. I wrestled my whole life in the living room with you. 
So, you know, give me a shot. I know you have a camp coming up. He was sponsoring Ken Patera that year for the 1972 Olympics. Ken was a weightlifter, set the world record of pressing 500 pounds over his head. And he was going to Germany in 1972. Vern was sponsoring him. He was also sponsoring the Gruck Roman and the uh, uh, freestyle wrestling team. So Dan Gable and all those guys that were on that uh, was a phenomenal crew of, of men. And I went and watched Ken. And when we came back, uh, I'd played football with Brunzel uh, at Minnesota. He was a receiver and a running back. And he was playing semi-pro football. And I said, Jim, why don't you come and try out at the camp with us? I don't know anything about wrestling. I said, well, I don't know a lot about it either. But you know what? Let's give it a whirl. We're good athletes. And then Rick Flair, who I knew in high school, he wanted to wrestle. And he heard Ken Patera. Him and Ken were working out. Rick was 298 pounds at that time. And Rick came to the camp. And then uh, the Iron Sheik, who was on the Iranian Olympic team, and uh, Alan Rice, who was a uh, assistant and helped my dad get connections with how he could uh, fund the fund the thing. And Alan was a uh, met Cosro and and wanted him to he wanted to be a pro. And then we had Bob Bruggers out of professional football that came in and he tried out an all star team. The rest, I guess, was history. This was funny just the other day, and I just realized that. Um, Sunday, September 25th, was 50 years the day that we all started in that wrestling camp. Ken Patera, Rick Flair, Jim Brunzel, the Iron Sheik, myself, and Bob Bruggers. And there was about 100 that tried out, but after the first day, there was only six of us left. We went six hours a day, six days a week, in an old barn with no windows on it. You know, in Minnesota, you know, in January, <laughs> we went from freezing to March 1st and, uh, you know, some 20 below days. And he had this one drill as you got better. There was one guy in the middle and everybody else on the outside of the ring. And one guy would go in and they'd call headlock, take over, uh, you know, uh, two tackles, uh, arm drag. And then one guy would stay in the middle and go through all five guys. So you'd be in about 15, 20 minutes you know, sweat pouring off you. Then you get at the end of the line and your sweatpants and sweatshirt would freeze to you. And then when you get to the front of the line, you go in, they call it body slam. And Jesus, God, it felt like your whole body went like the cartoon character. <laughs> <laughs> but toughened us all up. And, and uh, you know, all except Bob ended up being, you know, very successful in a lot of main events for a lot of us. Hey, and Flair was recently wrestling not that long ago. So <laughs> we're the same age. <laughs> that crazy that he was doing that? Yeah. Well, you What'd know, you think he, about that? Well, you know what? I mean, I still work out. I got I've got two kids right now at the WWE train. I've been training with. I don't get it, I don't get in the ring. I get a young guy and I I talked him through and showed him how to get in and out of the holds. And uh, then I have him doing the demonstrating for the, and these two, these two, I think are going to make it. And I have another gal that made it down there, Tiffany, uh, Tiffany Stratton, they call her. And uh, she's, uh, they're really excited about her. So still have a hand in it a little bit, but I don't get in the ring and do it. I talk them through it and, you know, a lot of mental games with them and telling them about 
about the business and how hard it is and what you have to do to succeed. Now, Tiffany, you trained or you're saying yeah. Tiffany's your daughter? Oh, just trained her. I trained her. She, a friend of mine uh, knew her parents and she was, she was, she was quite an athlete. She uh, was five years on the U S uh, gymnastics team and she won everything she could there. And then she went in a year into cross training. She, she won first place in competition in that. And she went into weightlifting and at her weight class, she set a world record for uh, press. And then, um, we're not, while I was training her, she was, uh, went out for bodybuilding contest and she won that, but she's a good athlete. She's got a good attitude. Now <laughs> we had a few issues when we started. But but she's there now, and she's she's doing exceptional. How's your relationship with everybody in WWE right now? Oh, I have, you know, I just I, I sent Stephanie last night a, a note uh, uh, about the fifty year deal that we had, and she said that is totally awesome. And then we backed and forth a little bit, and I told her how good they're. I think the programming is as. Uh, 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 got a little bit back more to uh, some more wrestling to it uh, with Triple H in charge. So I think it's, uh, for me, it, it's better. You know, I don't like the boom, 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 and, you know, just a show and here we go. You know, the guys, like Vern used to say, that on the marquee, it's wrestling. Let's give them wrestling. So I think it's... Uh, it's a good, very good product. What do you think about Vince McMahon retiring? Well, I guess he had to. Well, were you shocked? Because it seemed like he wasn't ever going to go anywhere. You know what I mean? Uh, well, under the circumstances, I guess it didn't shock any of us. But, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, you thought he'd always be there. How is your relationship with Vince? Maybe not right now, but like over the years, it's been a lot better. Well, well, you know, Vince came to us to 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 buy us out, and um, he came in the spring of '83, and uh, came to town. Uh, we picked him up at the airport. Went up. We had a Vern, our lawyer, Vince, and myself. We're the only four that knows what really happened. And Vince said he wanted, you know to make a proposal and, and buy us out. And um, he, uh, he gave it, it, Vern said, first of all, we get, we have partners. I've got partners. I got partners in Winnipeg. I got a partner in Denver, Colorado. I've got a partner, uh, Dennis Hilgart, who runs uh, Milwaukee, Chicago, Phoenix, Las Vegas, him and Leo Namalini in, in, in uh, uh, San Francisco. Um, his partners in Chicago, Uber Snyder and Dick the Bruiser. So he said, you know, I got to, I have to present it to them and see what, you know, what we, how we could do, make this work. He says, okay, I'll, you know, give us a couple months. So he came back in August. We met, we gave him the number and he said, okay. Um, drove back to the airport. He said, uh, I'll get back to you. As he got out of the car and he walked up to the front door of the airport, he turned around and he said, I don't negotiate. And Vern looked at me and said, what did he say? He said, I don't negotiate. What does he mean by that? And I said, I don't know what he means by it. <laughs> it's what he said. So 
we didn't that was uh that was in the fall of 83 early september late august and so then we didn't hear anything back from them and then we 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 do our battle royals so we had under the giant through october and then the winners the winner of the battle royals would beat the world champion and uh hogan had a match he'd won the battle royal had a match with uh bachwinkle didn't win it and then we had him booked in Chris, christmas week was a big week for us all our major cities were sold out and they had six-man tag team matches with Bachwinkle Stevens and Jerry Blackwell and Bobby Heenan in their corner against Brenzel, myself, and Hulk Hogan. And at that time, and we had to sign a, uh, a non-disclosure with CBS. They wanted to do, they wanted to do a Saturday night two-hour special in April, and they wanted Bachwinkle and Hogan in the in a for a championship match. So Hogan, we had that whole week of Christmas. Hogan had gone to Japan right after our last battle royal in Phoenix, and he didn't show up in St. Paul that night. And we got my dad had got a letter two days before from Tampa, Florida. It said, I'm not coming back. Signed Hulk Hogan. And Vern looked at the letter and he said, oh, Tampa, Florida. I mean, he knew Hogan was living in Minneapolis at the time. He said, it's Eddie Graham. They were always pulling jokes on each other. So he just threw it away. And then Hogan didn't show up. So I called him after the St. Paul. I said, hey, man, what are you doing? Why didn't you show up? Well, I'm going to go work for the WWE starting in January. I said, well, you know, business isn't done that way, you know. There was, in wrestling, it was always your handshake was your contract. Nobody ever broke that until Hulk Hogan broke that. He didn't show up for those. And then what McMahon did, he started picking off our talent in the AWA. We didn't, nobody was under contract. And um, he got Gene Okerlund, our announcer. He got some more of our talent. Every time we got somebody really established, he'd grab them. And uh, we we battled him for a while, but you know, pretty soon he just he went in and started buying TV time slots that we we had in San Francisco and trying to get it in Denver, trying to get it in Minneapolis. Couldn't he got Winnipeg? He started buying the time, buying the show that we we had these. We had a rating, a twenty four rating with a sixty four share of the audience on our syndicated program. Wow. Plus, we're across Canada on TSN. So by getting Winnipeg, he got all of Canada from us. And it just kept, he kept hitting us because he needed those big markets to make what he was trying to do work. And, uh, you know, the rest was history. Would Hogan have won the title in, in April had he stayed? No, he never, no, he never got to that. But if he had stayed, would he have won the title? Certainly could have. I I'm wonder sure. if, uh, yeah. I wonder if you guys had any sort of like regrets of like not giving him the title sooner. Would he not have left? Do you think he still would have left anyway? I think he. I don't know. He always says I've talked to him since. He says I loved Minneapolis. I really wanted to stay, but Vince had, you know, he told me that Vince was paying him more money to miss the towns than when he would have been there. If he'd have been there, I don't know if that was true or not. But 
That's what he said. Wow. And McMahon needed Hogan to make that thing work. Without him, they'd have never been able to do it. I agree. You know, Hogan, he, I, Hogan was in New York. I wrestled at Chase Stadium when he was wrestling Andre the Giant. And he had a horrible match that night. He was he was so bad. And I went out with Ricky Steamboat and Pat Patterson and um, uh, Ricky's tag team partner at that time. And I was going back to the room and I'm going down the hall and there's Hogan sitting in front of the door of his room. And I said, what's the matter, big man? He said, I can't make it in wrestling. And I said, well, come to the AWA. You've got a lot of potential. You just need you need to be groomed. You need to be worked with. So we put him in the six-man tag matches with Jim and I. And uh, we would tag him in when we had control. And, you know, if he had the arm, we'd, we had the arm, we'd give it, they'd grab the arm, twist it, drop a leg on it, tag out. So he could get the flow of everything. And then Vern helped him with his interviews uh, because he was failing in New York. And, you know, we got him to work. He was bigger than bigger than big. Yeah, that's where Hulkamani really started, AWA. Yeah, it did. Yeah, without a doubt. I agree, so. though. Without Hulk for Vince, I don't see. I mean, all those other guys are great, but you need that top tier guy who's the you know most charisma, like to be the top of the mountain, and then everybody else can fall underneath. He was the guy. In. And then yeah. once once that, and they all wanted, and then he got the network TV, and all the wrestlers wanted to be on the network TV. Then they all started, you know. Piper left where he was working in Charlotte and, and uh, Randy Macho Man, they got him out of Tennessee and they just, they just, guys just kept coming in. And uh, pretty soon it was, you know, he had everybody. Do you, really difficult, do you know? think that you wanted to work for WB? Yet? I know obviously you're an AWA guy, but like you said, you were, you wrestled, I think you wrestled Johnny Rods maybe at, at Shea Stadium, but I know you were there for a few matches. Was there ever anything where you wanted to wrestle there more? Well, um, we had a chance. They wanted Jim and I up in New York. And Vern used to send up, like, uh, if somebody like Billy Superstar Graham was near the end of his deal, uh, Vince would want him, Vince Sr., and he would go up there and do their TVs for six months, and then he'd finish up with us, and then they would, he'd go right in there and wrestle Bruno. Um, that's the way they ran theirs. But I know I, you were talking about Johnny Rods. I had a match with him. It was a Madison Square Garden. Oh, okay. And we were on the second match, and we wrestled for about fifteen minutes. And we got the, we had the people standing. And when I came out, Vince Senior stopped me. He said, "What was that?" I said, "That was a wrestling match." He said, "Well, how are my guys going to follow that?" And I said, well, "That's their problem." Right. You know, but they had a different philosophy. They they wanted big men characters cartoon characters and it, it didn't make any difference if they knew how to wrestle or not you know it was just boom 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 and uh that was their perception of it and the perception of the awa and it was it was perception of what we had to do you had to know how to wrestle i mean Vern's always the marquee says wrestling you learn how to wrestling here when you go in that ring you wrestle Absolutely. And, you know, you try to win your match in the most exciting manner you can, but you better be able to control the match, control your opponent. And uh, that's what we learned how to do. 
were you ever like going to stay with WBF, or is that just as like a favorite of Vince Sr.? Well, you were well, just kind of coming in. Jim and I to come up there, and Jim had just got married, and he didn't want to go up to New York and you know be on the road that much away from his new wife. So we never had that opportunity. I mean, we, that was the opportunity. We just didn't take it. And then Gene Oakland was calling me all the time. Hey, they, once Brunzel left, they want you to come up and, you know, you and Jim tag up, up here. I said, Gene, I can't walk out on my dad. Come on. And they, they call, he called me three or four times. And then finally they gave up. No, I mean, I look, I look back on it, you know, the position I was in, I mean, I can't, you can't, family's more important than anything else. And that's what we were brought up. And I wasn't going to walk out on him. Yes, I would have liked to have had the opportunity to compete against those people up there because I think uh, our style, we'd have done really well. Imagine you and Brunzel instead of Blair and Brunzel instead of the Killer Bees could have the high flyers, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. I mean, you guys had a great run at AWA irregardless of that. I mean, just, yeah, we did. still had a great run. Yeah, we, we did. We had a good one. And, and uh, you know, the people we had to wrestle with were phenomenal. And um, I, I'm coaching kids. I, I tell them two stories that I, I said, you have to get people emotionally involved with into you. Either they're going to like you or they're not going to like you. You can't, you can, you can, can control that a little bit, but you have to let your real personality come out and they're either like you and you won't. But we were wrestling in San Francisco, uh, tag team title match. We were champions. We're wrestling Tito Santana and Rick Martel. And Bachwinkle's got a championship match that night. We're in the Cow Palace, big, huge building. People are distant from the ring, so it's it's hard to get a good feeling. So we're on the last, second to the last match and double main event. And Tito and Rick walk out through the door and they, California, San Francisco is a rough crowd. And <laughs> they walk out, and the people are going, boring, boring, bullshit, bullshit. Oh, my God. Well, at least they'll cheer us. We walk out, boring, boring, bullshit. So we wrestled for 18 minutes, and Tito and Rick had a hold on us, and we just, we'd fight out of them and do these, big moves and come out on top and they would switch it and get back on whatever if they had our arm or leg, whatever that they were on at eight. It, it was, it went from boring, boring, bullshit, bullshit to boom, boom, boom. At 18 minutes, they were standing. So we wrestled 43 minutes and we had them standing the rest of the time. And when we came out, Vern was the first one to grab us. And he said, guys, it was the greatest match I've ever seen. The way you guys took that crowd, unbelievable. And then Bachwinkle even came up, Ray Stevens, Pat Patterson, Jerry Blackwell, Baron Von Raschke, everybody on the card. So that one meant a lot to us. And that's why when I'm teaching my kids, I said, you know, it's not how much you do in the ring. It's what you do and when you do it. And... So then we had a match in Denver, Colorado, and it was what they call a cold match. We were tag team champions. It was the main event, but they had didn't have anything really, you know, going. Uh, Nick Bachwinkle and, and was the champion. 
uh, Pat Patterson and Ray Stevens were partners and, and Pat had gone for a few months and he was out. So Ray was kind of on his own and would tag up with Nick once in a while. And so in Denver, they put us in a, in a title match and Ray Stevens and Pat Patterson came back in and they had Bobby Heenan. And Denver was a good town for us. With me playing football in Wyoming, I usually got a lot of extra publicity out there. And uh, the building was, it's kind of a round building and it seated about 16,000 people. And when we walked out, you could just hear it pulsate. The people were so, it just you could feel it go through your body, you know, and the adrenaline would jack up pretty good. So we get in the ring with Patterson and Stevens and Heenan. And in eight minutes, we had, they had a top wrist lock on us and we'd fight out of it. And one would distract the referee or something and pull our tights or pull our hair and then get us back in the hold. And they did that for eight minutes. There was never a punch or a kick thrown in the match. And we had a full-fledged riot. People trying to get in the ring and help us. Wow. You know, and that's what I'm trying to teach these young kids. That's where people emotionally are so into you. They live and breathe what you're doing. When you're out there and they've got a hold on and they're grinding on you, they're grinding on them. And they're feeling it. If you can make the people do that, you can, you'll be a main inventor for the rest of your life. Yeah, imagine that. Yeah, you know, and I had some other, I had an hour match with uh, Bachwinkle and, and Patterson and Stevens and a few others came up and Mad Dog Michonne greatest hour match they ever saw in their life. But again, it was two people that, you know, knew what to do and when to do it and how to do it. Less is more, right? Yeah, for sure. With AWA, I feel like there's so much. You mentioned a bunch of big, great names like Bachwinkle, obviously Heenan, Jesse the Body Ventura eventually, you know, is in there. I mean, AWA had like the biggest of the big road warriors really made their stamp in AWA. I mean, yeah. you guys had everybody at one point. Well, they all they all wanted to wrestle in the AWA, you know, in Charlotte, in Florida, Texas, all those other territories. They wrestled 360 days out of the year and sometimes twice on Saturday and Sunday. Vern was a family man and in Minnesota and in, in the AWA territory, which ran from Winnipeg to St. Louis to the West coast people, when summer came, they didn't want to be out. They didn't want to be indoors. They hit the, they hit the lakes and they hit the cabins and whatever else they're doing. And, um, so we got the whole month of May off the first two weeks of June and this summer, we only wrestled two or three times a week, usually the major cities. Sometimes they do a, you know, like a smaller one in a fundraiser somewhere in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, or Davenport, Iowa, or something like that. But the major city still ran. Um, and it was funny because Hogan, we had a big card in St. Paul in uh, the end of April. And we sold out the building. And we had the building next door, the St. Paul Auditorium sold out. We had 21,000 or 22,000 in the big one and eight in the other. And they closed circuited it over there. And it was, I don't know, $280,000, $300,000 gate. And Hogan says, we got to run in Mayburn. Come back with me. And I think he was wrestling with David Schultz. Vern said, Hope we can. May will just die. Vern, I'm hot. I'm hot. I'm hot. Well, they came back in May. He talked Vern into it. 
and it went from a $300,000 gate to a $30,000 gate. <laughs> Not good. Yeah. And it was, it was the time of year. So we only, we wrestled 250 to 270 days out of the year. So the top talent wanted to be there. They were paid well. Uh, Vern was considered the, one of the best payoff mans. 33% went to the talent. It was divided up then according to where you were on the card and so on and so forth. So uh, it was, uh, it was a, a good place to be, and that's where why the top talent always wanted to be here. And it seemed like every time you guys created a big name, Vince definitely had his eye on AWA, and you know he would take them. Obviously, I mean, eventually he'll end up getting after the NWA. Of course, he'll end up getting the Road Warriors to become LOD. But Jesse the Body goes there, like you said, Mean Gene, Hogan, Heenan, then Mister yeah. Perfect. I mean, they end up getting everybody, and and including my partner, John. You know, we never, it, it never hurt if somebody left, if they told you they were going to leave. Of all the people that left the AWA, Marty Giannetti and Shawn Michaels even, you know, they sent me up tapes, one from Kansas City, one from San Antonio, said, here's a good young team for us. It'd be a lot of work to get. <laughs> they were hard to work with. Yeah. But they were sensational, you know, and they caught on. As soon as they got established, boom. They're gone. We couldn't lock them up. We just didn't have the, the funds to do it and put people on contracts. Um, so what was the question? <laughs> I, I was just it. saying, it seemed like WB every time a good guy, oh, they would scoop them right up. Like they were like, you guys were almost like their breeding ground without you really being officially the breeding ground. Right. The only one, the only one that came to us and said he was leaving fulfilled his commitments, and then left. Who do you think that might have been? Maybe perfect? Kurt Hennig? Nope. Hmm. Scotty Hall, maybe? Nope. Definitely not the Nasty Boys. Um, Jim Brunzel, maybe? Oh, yeah. Yep. We'll drop a Jim? Nope. Wow. I don't I don't know. I know that was Bobby Heenan. Bobby oh, Heenan. okay. Yeah. Only one. Wow. Respect, yeah. though. I mean, you, yeah. you should do that. Yeah. And that's what I told Hogan. I said, you know, fulfill your commitment. And then if you want to leave, it, let you go. We're not going to hold you to it. But God, you don't just, you know, that kills us. You know, they, they'd, go, they'd go into an AW territory. Uh, they'd bring the, their group that they they get most of the guys that they got out of the AWA and put them in Denver. And they wrestled, they'd go in the night before we had a match there. And they looked more like the AWA than we did. You know, so Steal we, some we, of the audience. Yeah. It was it was really uh, it was tough. I mean, we, we ran Thanksgiving every year, Thanksgiving and Christmas. And we always booked our booked the arenas a year out, sometimes two years out. And I'd call the St. Paul Civic or the same, yeah, the St. Paul Civic Center, and Gloria was the gal's name. And I said, Gloria, we got uh, you know, we just calling up to confirm the next date here we're coming in and and uh she said well you don't have that date i said well, we get we get all the dates up through the end of the year no 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 no. new york came in and took the dates from you I said, well, what do you mean they took them from us well they cut a better deal with us and that had been we'd been wrestling with i mean with those people for you hundreds of years you know shit, and you know when he talks, 
Yeah. Was there a lot of resentment with you, your dad, and Vince McMahon at that time? Because it seems like, well, man, yeah, this guy's stealing all our yeah. talent and our business. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was horrible. I mean, yeah, it was, it was really tough on us. You know, I mean, it uh, put us both into bankruptcy. You know, and I guess that's what he wanted to do. So he did a good job of that. I did work for him for a year, you know, and they, they inducted Vern into their Hall of Fame. And, and you have to realize what's behind Vince's thinking, you know. It was Chicago. That's where Vern was, you know. He was the biggest star that came off that network TV from 1950. You know, uh, Lou Thez was the world champion, but he, would, he wouldn't be on there every week like Vern was. And Vern became the U.S. champion. And he was kind of the featured guy. And in 1950, Vern was the first athlete besides Babe Ruth to make over a hundred grand. And he was getting all the network shows. He was doing Howdy Doody, uh, um, the Jack Parr show, uh, Jack Lillane, uh, you know, you name it, he was on him. But he was, he was the guy that really got accepted by the, uh, by the public. And, uh, you know, he, because he could wrestle and it was his background and he had a lot of charisma. And he realized how important interviews were to establish the talent. And that's why the interviews started back then. And that was, he convinced them to do that. But he had a, he had a, he had an unbelievable feel for, for the ring that people, what people wanted and what TV wanted and how he could, he, he could put that together better than anybody. Was it hard to convince him to do the Hall of Fame or even convince you to be a part of it? Because it seems like there might have been a little animosity. Maybe uh, not at that well, point, but obviously there was in the past. At that point, you know, he was he was, he was uh, in the stages of Alzheimer's. And, um, you know, they asked, and I said, when they called me, I said, well, yeah, you know, we, yeah, we, we'll consider it. Uh, you know, and I told Vern, yeah, and by then he, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. But I said, uh, somebody said, I'm, I'm going to have to talk for him. I said, because he'll get lost up there and I don't want him looking. So, uh, I did the lead into it and then, uh, he did a good job while he was up there. He, he turned me one, one, if you ever see it, he turned me, he said, why am I here? Who brought me here? <laughs> what am I doing up here? I said, you're in the. Hall of Fame, you're being inducted into the Hall of Fame by Vince McMahon. Ah, I never did like that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Got a good laugh out of the crowd there. But um, but he went in after McMahon had a match with Shawn Michaels that night. We both went in and congratulated him. And then I sat down with Vince. I said, you know, I'd really, I really love the business. I'd like to get back into it. So then they hired me. And I worked. Uh, they had me... <laughs> It was really difficult for me because they wanted, I'd go to, um, we were, I was working in their office and, you know, we were worked with writers and it was really hard for myself and dusty roads for us to be quiet. <laughs> you had to kind of go along with that. They wanted, and we tried to turn it a little bit. So one night we're, I'm sitting with uh, McMahon watching uh, Shawn Michaels match. And he said, why can't my guys do that? I said, I guess they're not getting trained properly. 
He said, you think you can do it? I said, yeah, I know I can do it. So then they sent me, I'd do two days in, Louis, in Louisville, two days in Atlanta, or two and a half days, and then I'd come back Friday night. So I'd be gone Monday, get home late Friday night, and be back Monday. And uh, then they wanted me to write the interviews for the guys. And I was having a real problem with that. I, I said, you know, I tried to explain to them, I said, the way we've, we've all come through the thing, everybody has who they want to be inside of them. But they're afraid when they get in front of people to let that out. And I said, what I like to do is I like to give a guy, I like to get his background, talk to him, give him a beginning and an ending and let him fill in the middle. And let him be who he is. Tell your story. In fact, this young kid I have down uh, with uh, WWE, they did interviews yesterday. He called me up and said, hi, G. He said, oh, unbelievable. But he called me the night before and I told him, you don't have to be nervous. In the ring, you guys will eat him up. He said, so I'm nervous about my interview. And I said, well, let me hear it. And he did it. I said, no, 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 no. I said, give me a little background about yourself. Well, he grew up in the north side of Chicago. His mother was an alcoholic. His dad had to work 20, 22 hours a day. So Tyler, he was there with his brother and sister. He'd have to take care of them because his mother was out of it all the time. And he got into, you know, he was kind of a tough kid and a, a little bigger kid in school and, and got in a lot of trouble. So the gang started coming up to him and he got into a gang at age 15. And he always wanted to be a professional wrestler. And he went out for the wrestling team that year when he was 15 and he was winning everything and he wanted to concentrate on that. And the gangs were giving him a really hard time and they were all over him. And, he, and uh, they even shot up his house one night. And that's when his parents and him got, he said, I got to get out of here. So by the time he was 16, he finally got out of there and came up to Minneapolis. And I said, tell that story in your interview. Don't be somebody you're not. Tell that story. That's a, that's a, you know, and you wanted to be a professional wrestler. You found me, asked me to be your mentor. You don't even have to say anything about me, but say, you know, you find a coach that, you know, took you under his wing and guided me and I'm here and I'm prepared to eat up everybody in the, in the WWE. I think I have the credentials to do it. I'm big, I'm strong. I've got a wrestling background and he, he's, he's going to be, he's going to be, he'll be all right for him. But again, you know, and they're all over my ass, write the interview, see him punk. He's all pissed off. I said, what are you so pissed off about? Well, they're not calling me up there. And, you know, I thought he was a little light, slight like myself. And I said, well, you have to, you have to be really good in the ring, which you are. And now, don't, these interviews don't make any sense to me. Well, what do you think I should do? I said, well, how do you feel? Well, I'm pissed off. I said, give me an interview. Rip up the, rip up the WWE. Rip up Vince, whatever you want to do. However you feel, let it out. And he did. <laughs> Everybody was, what? Did you hear what he said? <laughs> Pretty soon he's up there. But you can't... you. To me, what they, they do it now, they try to make 
a character, a, a personality, rather than letting their own real personality come out. And that was that's that was really hard for me. I think they're getting more back to that now. Uh, because I think uh, just from listening to them yesterday, uh, after they got home, they called me last. They said, God, they loved our interviews. <laughs> good, good, good. I said, didn't that feel better? When you were trying to be somebody else, I could tell you didn't feel comfortable doing it. It wasn't you. Be yourself. So that's what's really hard to get out of a lot of people. And some people fail because they can't let that inner self out. Definitely. I mean, I can think of a bunch of guys through their careers that are like yeah. maybe different backstage, but they couldn't get it out on air. But it's funny you mentioned Punk. Obviously, he got a little bit of trouble recently, maybe yeah. being too honest. Too honest, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Well, that happens to some of us. Yeah. <laughs> I was probably too honest sometimes when I spoke up at the WWE, too. But you know what? I didn't know any other way. If they're going to ask me something, I'm going to tell them what I think. You know, not just, you know, everybody wanted to, when Vince had an, oh, geez, that's a great idea. The, the one day he had a, this idea and he laid it out and everybody agreed. And then he asked Dusty and Dusty didn't agree with him. And then he called on me and that's why I, I agree with Dusty. I said, I just don't see it that way. But he did it his way. And of course, that was a mark against me. <laughs> But of course, I didn't care. <laughs> you know, I'm going to be me and I'm going to, and I'm not going to try to be somebody I'm not. And if they're going to ask me something, I'm going to tell them. If they don't like it, don't ask me. That's simple. Yep. If I could just rewind back to the end of like the AWA, because I mean, obviously we were talking about kind of, kind of some of the good days, but then Vince kind of comes in and, and steals some of the talent, steals some of the talent and so on and so forth. But it seems like at the end, when, when you guys are still trying things like ESPN, the challenger series, you know, for a few years before that super clash, so you'd be teaming up with different territories like Lawler and Jared and like JCP. And I mean, you guys tried all these different things. Why do you think like nothing could stick? Was WWF just too strong? Was it too national? Was it too global? Well, well we could have, if we could have, when we got all the promoters together and did USA wrestling, if they would have had, one man make the decision and they go by that, but they all had their egos and they were all battling all the time. They wanted their people doing this. And, you know, we're, we're, at, we did a, an event in, at Chase or at uh, Comiskey Park with the uh, Crockett's and the Jarrett's and had a great crowd. I think Magnum wrestled Flair that night. The Road Warriors were on the car. We had a really a big, a big crowd and do a, great gate while we're doing while we're out there wrestling the crockets are trying to sign our talent to contracts in the locker room so they all wanted to be in charge they all wanted to do it their way if they would have just said okay bill watts or Vern or Jarrett, you're in charge whatever you'll be you'll have the final say they couldn't do that and everybody was tearing and going and want to do do it their way. Uh, Vern and probably Bill Watts had the best feel for it because Vern had had a big territory and the most successful one. And Bill 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 learned from Vern, so he had kind of pretty a lot of the same philosophy. He just didn't uh, when it came to how he treated some of his talent. And um, 
but if you'd had those two running it, it probably it could have succeeded possibly. But Crockett's had their way they wanted to do it. Jarrett wanted to do it his way. We did a we did a pay per view with with Jarrett, and to this day this pisses me off. Uh, I've heard Jerry Lawler say, "Well, Vern Gagne didn't pay me." Well, the deal was Jarrett was supposed to pay his guys. Vern would pay his. And we didn't do that well with the pay-per-view. It was uh, out of Chicago. And um, we all we got paid. It wasn't big because it didn't do it didn't do very big. And but Jarrett never paid his guys. Vern paid his guys out of his own pocket. And then Jarrett told his guys, well, Vern was supposed to pay you. So they all thought that Vern stuck them and didn't pay them. But the, the agreement, I was right there when they made the agreement that Jared pays his people and Vern pays his. Right. Yeah. So, so that's that's why that thing would never work. You know, they all had their, their own ways of doing business, and it was different than Vern's philosophy was all you it, – it's a sport. It presented as a sport, and you better be able to wrestle when you get in the ring. Other guys, you know, they had what they called the gimmick matches, too many gimmick matches. And uh, we had two two angles a year that ran the whole year. Yeah, those guys were doing one every week. Yeah. You know, uh, so that was, that was the difference, the biggest difference. Now, I know in the AWA, obviously, Eric Bischoff worked there as well. I was just curious. What's the current relationship with Eric? And like, what did you think about him then? Because I know you work for WCW, but was there a riff? Are there? you really going to ask me that one? Yeah, yeah. Why not? why not? Eric came to our office one day selling ninja suits out of the trunk of his car. Right. And they had taken Gene Okerlund from us. Then they grabbed Ken Resnick. That wasn't a, you know, that was a loss. And then we we had. He was there the day we were on a Friday and Monday. We have to find an announcer. We don't have an announcer. And our, our one of our kids that did some of the producing, uh, Mike Shields, he said, well, this guy is in here. You know, he, he talks. Okay, maybe I can let me work with him over the weekend just so we have somebody here to do the interviews. And that's how Eric got the job. And then... Um, uh, then the guy from St. Louis that took over uh, WCW, oh, God, why can't I think of his name? Um, he came up and had a meeting with us. Oh, gosh. And he wanted, he was telling Vern, he said, what we'd like to do, Vern, what we need to do, because we'll, we'll bring you into the TBS deal here with us, the whole thing, we'll do the whole thing. But we got to find a midget, a hunchback midget. We need a hunchback. He can't get pinned. He can't get his shoulders down. We go, oh my God, this guy has no idea what wrestling's all about. He needs to make a big joke out of it. And so he left and we didn't do anything with him. And he called me about a month later. He said, Hey, Greg, uh, can you I would like to I'd like to work out a deal with you. I can't work with your dad. And I said, well, What kind of deal are you trying to work out? He said, I'll pay you a hundred thousand dollars if you'll put our TV show in your time slot. And I told him what he could do <laughs> and where to stick it. <laughs> right. Yeah. What a jerk. 
And uh, so then we were kind of struggling and Bischoff was getting nervous. So I said, well, I can call down there. Bill Watts is now down there. He took over from this other guy and, uh, you know, see if I can get you in there. So I got him the job down there. And then um, Bill Watts hired me. And I was going down there to be a booker with uh, Dusty Rhodes, Michael Graham, and uh, Bill Dundee. And Colonel Parker, uh, Robert Fuller. But I was going to be, it was Dusty and I and Mike were the three, three top guys to make the decisions. And he wanted to give Dusty, he had been burned out, wanted to give him some time off. So Mike and I were doing all the shows. So in my contract, I uh, had my lawyer work on it. And we put in, they gave me a, a base salary. And then I put in incentives. If the ratings came up on TV, because we were doing the TV, we get, we get bonus this. And at the pay-per-views, when they go up a point, we get a bonus here, here, here. Every point it goes up. So um, I took, my lawyer got it ready. I took it back. I gave it to Bill Watts. And he said, I'll take a look at it. Uh, you guys have to be in South Carolina. Uh, you can you right up there and I Bischoff was now an announcer there and we're in a meeting before we're going up to South Carolina and Bill said hey I got this executive producer job available and I said well should I go down and apply for it and he said no they got they got Tony Schiavone they got uh, David Crockett some guy from Atlanta and Bischoff's going down I said well why wouldn't you go down there well, let me go down I, it, it does it, I'm running the thing. Don't worry about it. So we go to South Carolina and uh, this is about a week later. Now we go back down to South Carolina and I haven't signed my contract yet. I said, Bill, let's get that contract done. He says, yeah, yeah, just yeah. get down to South Carolina. And that night, Bill Watts shows up in South Carolina. He comes in, he says, well, you guys, you got your new boss is Eric Bischoff. I got fired. Bischoff was the executive producer. And Eric had been calling me all the time and saying, you know, what are we going to do? What changes do we have to make to make this thing work and all that? And um, I was telling him like a dipshit and all that in his presentation and he got the job. So then we're working for him. And um, things went along and I'm riding back with him one night and he said, how can we turn this thing around? I said, the quickest way to turn this thing around would be to get Hulk Hogan. I said, look, you get, we get, just got Fleur's coming back. So you got the former NWA champion, Hogan. We'll make him, why don't you talk to Vern, get a deal with the, for the AWA. We'll make Hogan the AWA champion. We'll have a little tournament. Flair, the NWA champion. Now you've got your WrestleMania built in every year. They only meet at the end of the year. And you can go into Denver. You can bring Hogan in there as the AWA champion. Bring Flair in as the NWA champion. Those are your two main events in the town. And get your other people established underneath. You know, bring in some of those guys that were NWA guys, along with some AWA guys. Have them wrestle each other. And... That's where McMahon's hurting right now. You can hurt him in the Midwest. You can hurt him in the towns that we were in if we get Hogan. Well, I don't know him. Can you get him? And I said, well, oh, in the meantime, 
I'm sorry, prior to this, Mike Graham and I have to lay out a month of TVs for TBS, TBS special, um, Canada, and some overseas stuff. And we're there, you know, 11 o'clock at night, we're still in the office, and Bushoff comes in, he says, hey, you haven't signed your contract yet. And Mike had his changed. I said, get yours changed like mine has. So he did. Either one of you have signed your contracts yet. Well, Eric, this isn't the time. We're working on these things. You've got these shows to get out. You know, get off our ass. You got to sign them. You got to sign them. We can't. We're not going to. I'm going to take it. I'm going home this weekend. I'll take it to my lawyer and we'll look it over. He did this about four or five times. And now it's like 1.30 in the morning. And he said, would you guys just please? I said, have you made any changes in them? No, they're just the way you had them. Signed off on it without even looking at it. And uh, then we got Hogan. I He said, I don't know how to get a hold of Hogan. So I got a hold of him. I set it up. First, I get my contract back. We had this. We had the numbers came up. I said, hey, we get some bonuses. They weren't in the contract. Eric had put them all in his contract. So that one burned quite a bit. Yeah. Now when I'm getting a Hogan, I said, okay, I'll get you Hogan, but on one condition. I want I want something in there. I'm going to get a percentage of his merchandise. Okay. I said, get it, get it down there. Well, you get me Hogan. You get that in writing, and I get Hogan. So we're not all week. And I said, hey. He said, well, Bill Shaw's going out of town. we got to get Hogan in here. And I'm going home Friday night. I said, I'm not going to get him until you give me that deal. Bill said he'll get it to you. I said, I want to see it. I want to see it this time. So I went home Friday night. They didn't have my contract. I come back Monday. I walk in the office. They got a big sign, welcome Hulk Hogan. They flew down to his house and signed him over the weekend. Damn. And then I was out of that deal. So those are my experiences with Eric Bischoff. And then eventually he just fired me. He didn't want me around. And obviously the rest is history with Hogan and the NWO and everything else that went on. Everything else. So they took, they made that the NWO and they had the other one. Instead of the AWA and NWA, they had the NWO and WCW. So it worked out. It was all laid out for him. But that, so that went down and I'm not making anything up there. And I know Bischoff has called me a goof and everything else threatened to break my neck in Milwaukee last summer. And I said, take a shot. <laughs> we had to take a picture together. And I said, I had to knock you on your ass. He said, I'll break your neck. I said, give it a shot. <laughs> <laughs> As we, well, there's no love lost there. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. So as we wind it down, we head towards the finish here. What's the legacy of not only Greg Gagne, but Vern Gagne and, and like the history of wrestling? Because it seems like oh. Dumont Network, Chicago, setting it up, you, the history of the AWA, being a good worker, good wrestler, training some of the future people we're going to see on WWE TV and we're seeing a, on NXT TV. So what's the, the legacy of the Gagne's? Uh, well, the legacy of the Gagne is, uh, first of all, Vern produced a, we, we counted, we counted up George Shire, a good historian. 
Vern trained 144 wrestlers. And out of that, only two didn't make main event status. Baron Von Raschke, Larry Henning, Ole Jean, Lars Anderson. You know, people go, what? Really? Yeah, he trained those people. Plus the group we had, plus Ricky Steamboat, Sergeant Slaughter. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on. Uh, he contributed more, you know, back in, in the early days uh, when the territories were still there, it was Vern, Eddie Graham, uh, uh, Stu Hart, and the Funks. They produced most of the wrestlers that were in wrestling. And that's where every, the really good ones came out of those camps. You know, other ones were out there, but they didn't produce like these guys did. And Vern produced the most. That and the legacy of the sport, you know, to me, it's really important to keep that going. How the sport evolved to where it is today is through those pioneers that built it back in 1950. The Vern Gagne's, the Luthez's, the Wilbur Snyder's, the Bruiser's, uh, Yukon Eric, Killer Kowalski, you know, Pafo, you, you know, Don Leo Jonathan, the Mighty Atlas. And then from there, you know, and how it, how, how it built up. And I can tell you at one time in the AWA, our ratings were only beat by one other national show. That was 60 minutes. We had a 24 rating with a 64 share of the audience. And they had a, a 60 minutes at a 25 rating with a 60 five share of the audience. Wow. Impressive. That, you know, those are numbers like Super Bowl. Yeah. And that was on our throughout our syndication and along with what we had going across Canada. I mean that's that's pretty strong. And uh, now we're gonna give back to the people that built this through Power Town. And if people want to order those action figures right now, there's still a discount if you order now. PowertownWrestling.com. Get on there. Get those figures. We're going to have figures. And we're TA and I have been working very hard with Steve Rosenthal this week and uh, David Keller. We're, we've got some more merchandise that will be coming out hopefully before Christmas. And we've got a lot of big surprises for everybody. It's going to be good. Keep, keep, check, uh, check the social media, Power Town, where wrestling lives on. Awesome. Well, Mr. Guy, thank you so much uh, for all the time. PowertownWrestling.com. Definitely check them out. Those are some of the best figures I've seen in a very long time. You know, maybe since uh, since Spawn, but obviously there's some connection there as well. So really, really uh, good stuff. But Mr. Guy, thank you so much for all the time. JP, thank you for having me on the program. And I hope I didn't bore anybody out there with all this. But uh, no, definitely not. Good. Well, thank you. And I hope we can do it again sometime. This has been a John Paz Power Trip production in conjunction with the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Two Man Power Trip. You can check us out on Facebook. You can subscribe on YouTube. You can go to patreon.com slash TMPT Empire to become a patron. And also check out the website tmptempire.com and buy a shirt at prowrestlingtees.com. Two Man Power Trip. 
where the power lies, brother. <laughs>